Assassination in Haiti. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. This has been a frustrating and really a tough week for the residents of Haiti, which is the most populated country in the Caribbean. Just a few days ago, their president, Jovenel Moise, was assassinated in the presidential palace. It has confused a lot of people around the world, a lot of people who would hope for better things for Haiti. And joining us to talk about all of this is Amy Willan. She's a producer, author, and journalist. Her latest piece for the nation is the is a as Haiti has been abandoned by the media, the US and the world. Um, Amy, first of all, thanks for joining us. Explain why you say Haiti's been abandoned. Well, you know, of course, I'm a journalist who studies Haiti. So I always feel Haiti's been abandoned because <laughs> I'm always on it. Um, but I feel that it's been abandoned in its decline. People uh, consider Haiti so declined already that they don't um, tend to think about the worst things that can happen there. Uh, and so what I've seen recently before President Moise was killed was the way the gangs had emerged on the streets of Haiti, the lack of democratic participation, this kind of thing. And so, and no one was talking about it. And I wrote a piece, that, that very piece you speak of, the, it was published like six hours before he was assassinated. And then suddenly that got a lot of attention. The last time a lot of journalists, at least mainstream journalists, gave Haiti much attention was in 2010 when they had that horrific earthquake that killed literally tens of thousands of people. There was this huge international effort back then to try to rebuild Haiti. What happened? Well, um, as, as you know, uh, what happens when foreign aid comes in is often foreign aid goes primarily to contractors and people working um, who are known by that country. So they're not. Uh, the money from the US goes to US contractors who are rebuilding there. It goes to US contractors who are doing security there. That's the kind of, that's the way that at foreign aid functions, especially during moments of relief and reconstruction. So a lot of that huge amount of money that you saw going in did not go to Haiti, both from countries, but also from charitable entities. Because it goes to the charitable entity that then goes around maybe and does a good job. But as in the case of the International Red Cross might not do such a good job, even though it gets the lion's share of, of people like you and me, of money from people like you and me. And as you've pointed out, corruption has been a rampant problem at every level of the Haitian government. How corrupt was Jovenel Moise? Almost completely, I would say. And this is not a president who will be sorely missed by the Haitian people. Even though everyone is really sad that a Haitian president can be killed in his own house with levels of security like you can't imagine. But he was corrupt and his, his cohort, his coterie say, were also corrupt. So that he was empowering people to steal right and left. It's not unknown in Haiti before, but he carried it to, to levels of intensity that certainly I haven't seen in my 30 years of working there. And you're right that leadership and power in Haiti really isn't so much about politics, it is about business. That if you can somehow become the prime minister and put all of your cronies in various government bureaucratic positions, you can enrich them, you can enrich yourself and you can enrich all of your friends. Yeah, one reason for that is that the country's economy hasn't really been developed over all these years since the United States occupation. And when the US was occupying Haiti, which ended in 1934 after 19 years, they didn't really build up the country, they gave money here and there. And so the government could ride it out. And the government just became under that kind of, they studied it and they said, okay, we'll just be corrupt. We won't provide or do anything 
but steal because we can and then the foreigners will take care of the rest. But the foreigners don't really take care of the rest of the country either. It's And for Haitians themselves, the man in the street, the woman in the street, it's catch as catch can. If you can make a couple of bucks a day, you're very lucky. Several administrations starting of course with the Obama administration after the Haitian earthquake and following up even now to the Biden administration. They've been so focused on trying to get democracy, a democracy in Haiti. Is that perhaps they'll putting the cart before the horse? It's not exactly putting the cart before the horse because if it were a real democracy of the people and by the people, then I think steps would be taken to better the situation of the people. But it's been over and over a kind of band-aid selection instead of an election, making it look like democracy when it's not real democracy. And and the search has been really more for stability, the thought being in America in the old days anyway, that an election, a democratic election would give you some stability. But we see in places like Haiti, what looks like a democratic election doesn't give you stability and perhaps the people elected were not even really elected by the people. For the sense of stability in the Biden administration, they have talked a lot about supporting the prime minister, a man by the name of Claude Joseph. For people who don't know much about him, who is he and what's the significance here? You know, no one knows that much about him, and I know enough to make me concerned. He was Moise's prime minister, appointed by Moise. And then suddenly, I think it was. The day before Moise died, he fired the guy. (laughs) Well, the guy didn't have enough time to get out of office before the man who fired him was assassinated. So he was still prime minister when Moise was lying still warm with gunshot wounds on his bed. And so he took over the reins of power for the moment. And yeah, then the United States looked around, they said, who's in charge? They said, okay, this guy for the moment. But I would not, if I were Joseph, I would not be counting on their support down the road. What is life like for ordinary Haitians and the struggles that they deal with? And we're not talking about sort of the ruling class or or the elites, but sort of the ordinary citizens of Haiti. Well, they get up every morning, they don't have full-time jobs. They have jobs in the parallel economy, it's called. You know, they go out and they see if somebody needs someone to help with a construction project, or if someone needs someone to take stones out of their garden, or whatever anyone needs that they can find to do, they'll do. You, when you walk around Port-au-Prince, most of the time, you get the feeling that everybody's looking for work, walking around, trying really hard, but they're not getting what they need, and there's a lot of hunger. There is a lot of barefootness, which is not a good sign in a place like Haiti where everyone likes to look perfect. Um, kids have to pay for their education, so families are you know, really uh, taken down many notches by paying for their children's education, which is not the best education anyway. And food is very expensive and the cost of living is very high for these people, plus there are uh, Outages, blackouts, and gasoline shortages all the time. It's you know it's not a country that was being run under Jovenel Moïse. And given all those problems and all those difficulties, what should a government like the United States or other governments do to try to both alleviate the suffering, but also ensure, or at least to the extent that they can, that there is some level of stability, transparency, and democracy in Haiti? They need to listen to Haitian voices. And they need to expand the voices they listen to beyond the political class, especially 
Jovenel Moise's political class. So they need to listen to the people who for now more than a year have been trying to open up the conversation. Progressive voices, organizations that work with the people, people who work in the shanty towns. These are all Haitian groups, not foreign groups that have a lot to say about Haiti, how Haiti should move forward. And I think that the Americans, they've made little noises in the past couple of days about inclusion and democracy that are words that they don't you know, just throw around usually, especially inclusion. So I take a little bit of hope from that, that they're not gonna just go down the Moise path into further darkness. Does the Biden administration have the right people though to, to do this listening and to try to help Haiti along this path? I think, I think they do if they have the courage. They have to have the courage to not go the usual route. And I think helping them to have the courage is how badly governed the place was under Jovenel Moise. They see that, they know it has to be better. They're investing money, they're constantly investing money in Haiti. And that money doesn't go into the right hands, in fact, it goes into the exactly wrong hands. It turns into cash. That cash goes wherever that cash is directed by people who are not there. I would have to say criminal. I'm just going to say yeah. that here, and then you can decide <laughs> whether I'm right. <laughs> well, you know, you, you talk, it sounds like you, you are optimistic that the Biden administration is going to take some different sort of steps to listen to some new people to try to help Haiti. Are you optimistic though overall as far as Haiti's future? And what do you see in terms of benchmarks of success? Well, it would be a moral iniquity not to be hopeful. So I am hopeful because it's the right thing to be. Benchmarks will be real participation in a future election. Another benchmark will be the disarming of the gangs. Not the arrest of all the gang members, not not horrible penalties for them. Because they're Haitians too, and there are reasons why many of them are in the gangs. So that kind of thing, to make it calm and then to have elections. And, and to have the right programs in place to better everyday lives. And for journalists who want to go to Haiti, it sounds like it's still an incredibly dangerous place right now. I'm not there. Yes, <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's dangerous. I think, you know, I want people to go down, of course, but I think it's risky. And I have friends who are there, American journalists, and I honor them. I think it's great that they're there. You just have to be very, very careful. Really a dramatic, a dramatic series of events in Haiti. And unfortunately, these are sadly dramatic events that have been going on in Haiti for, for some time. Amy Willett, she's a professor, author, and journalist. She writes for The Nation. She's an expert in all things Haiti. And Amy, we really appreciate you coming on and explaining some things for us. And thank you. Thanks so much, David. You got it. Welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster here in the summertime. We're all looking for books and movies and things. And I've got one, I've got a movie that you have to see. The storyline goes like this An average American family becomes entangled in a bizarre web of espionage and corporate secrets because their hacker son gets targeted by the US government. Sound familiar? Well, it's a remarkable thriller in a documentary style presentation. The movie is called Enemies of the State. Here's the trailer. Watch. I came across a federal court decision and I'm whipping through this and it's like anonymous torture, US servicemen. I didn't quite realize at that point how bizarre the story would really be. 
My son was a pioneer in this activist group, Anonymous. He'd been running this secret server and someone had dropped off a file. That's the day that everything changed. He's got some crazy information that they did not want out there. And I thought, we're dead. We decided to fight this together. Where can you go to protect yourself from the United States of America? Every step of the story is from some secret shadowy world. Mexico, Russia, Canada. We were surveilled the entire time. And that's just the trailer. Uh, this is a terrific movie, everybody. Joining us is Sonia Kennebach. She's the filmmaker behind this. Uh, she's also an investigative journalist. Uh, Sonia, thanks for doing this. First of all, what prompted you to make this movie? Thanks for having me. Um, it's It was really, the, the first part was me being attracted to these type of stories, you know, secret stories that, that involve the FBI and government secrets and so on. So when I first heard about um, the Met the Heart story, I, I really just wanted to know more. And it turned out to be this incredible research rabbit hole that I dug into. And the film is really our journey of investigation. Tell us a little bit more about the main character, Mr. Hart. So um, when I first heard about the story, I heard that his parents, um, both of them were in the military as well, just as, as Matt DeHart. Um, they were spies during the Cold War. And they have said that their son, Matt DeHart, was um, you know, framed and tortured by the FBI because um, of his you know, hacktivism, and um, they say that he was an alleged WikiLeaks courier. And so that was sort of the starting point of the story. And I, I met with his, his parents. Um, I don't want to give away too much of, of the story, but at that time, um, Matt was not um, accessible to us. And so I, I met with his family, they showed me a lot of documents, and these documents just really you know, pointed in into you know really dark direction. Um, you know, they they had documents that showed um, that Matt had received um, a very heavy old um, drug, Thorazine, and and yeah, it, it it just had a lot of um, you know things that I, I really wanted to investigate further. And so um, I was actually still in, in the middle of doing um, research and filming for my previous film, which is about drone program whistleblowers and National Bird. And but I never really forgot about um, the Mad to Heart story. So after that film was done, I, I went back into it and it, it really is, it's, it's a story um, like I've never discovered before. A lot of people say it's even sort of stranger than fiction. We should point out that this is based on a true story. Are there things though that you had to simply for you know filmmaking sake either abbreviate or change or change characters? Um, no, this is this is a documentary and this is a true story. And and yes, you know I I always try to emphasize that because it is almost unbelievable, you know, in a, in, in a sense that, you know, you so the starting point of the story is this military family from, you know, middle America. And they crossed the border to Canada in the middle of the night, because um, they say that 
the US government is after them. And so they are applying for political asylum in Canada. And from there, we are unwrapping this, you know, and following this this story. And um and it, you know, and, and it really yeah, it it does. You know, it 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 goes into um, hacktivism. There there's a lot of like contradictory, um, you know, and statements in 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 the film. And it 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 really for me going you know deeper into the story. It it became this this um, yeah kind of a microcosm of what we're dealing with today. Where you know you you find you know you see all this like you know information you know and on the internet about government misconduct and and you know all these you know um bad things that the US government is and has been doing and so for me to investigate that that further these allegations you know that the FBI was framing and torturing someone um it it was you know it it, it was such an important story to me to tell Based on the investigative work you've done and putting this film together, do you have a sense in terms of how many families, how many people are caught up in the same sort of stuff that um, that the DeHart family face? I mean, that's a really difficult question because you know so much of um, what we are, you know. You know, hearing about you know, and 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 I've been you know becoming over the years an expert on um, whistleblower stories. Um, you know, there there is a very intense whistleblower prosecution in this country and the prosecution of of you know media sources. Um, on the other hand, this particular case is is not black and white. It is you know filled with ambiguity. It is filled with contradictions, and um, there's not just one side of the story. And so for me, it became really a case study on investigative journalism and how to find the truth. Um, to be honest, this film really for me is a film about the truth and how to find it. You know, in a world of, you know full of secrecy and propaganda and government secrets. So um, it is larger than this one story. Story that we are telling that is so you know bizarre and twisted. It's also a world filled with conspiracies, largely enabled by the internet. We live in an age where you can literally find confirmation for anything you want to believe or not. Um, what role does a conspiracy play in terms of the narrative of the story? It it is it it does play a you know pretty big role in in the sense that um, one part of the story is that you know the the Matt the Hart story the way that his parents were telling it it was covered worldwide in the media so it it started out you know as as you know one big feature by one investigative journalist and then a lot of other journalists worldwide started covering it it was you know activists were using it as an example of how far the US government would go to um, suppress freedom of speech and go after you know all types of dissent but what my team and I found out is that it the story is not black and white and a lot of what we are you know kind of experiencing in our world is is filled with ambiguity and especially if we if we go into this world of like national security and government secrets and so on where you 
often have trouble independently you know, verifying information when the government is not cooperating. Um, so, so that's what we were facing as journalists. We, we just ran, you know, we, we tried to you know, get information from the FBI and they said no one you know, from the FBI is allowed to um, provide us with information or, and, and, and cooperate you know, with this project. So when you, when you have, a story that is so shrouded in secrecy, and and you have you know you, you, you have government misconduct, very serious government misconduct, you know th- like things do you know they spread and get repeated and so on, and they get a life of its own, and and that's really what we are following in the film, and and when you know the audiences can can follow our own journey of investigation, and when you watch it, you know I hope that the audiences will feel some of the struggles that my team and I were feeling while we were we were we were covering the story, you know, the the back and forth, the different perspectives that we had, the the, the real story, like how do we find the truth when you know when when people everyone has an agenda. Um, the film has gotten all kinds of great uh, reviews and accolades at various film festivals. Have you gotten any reaction or heard any reaction from the FBI or other U.S. government agencies that are essentially part of this film, even though they didn't cooperate? Well, not yet, um, but normally the the FBI, you know, from my experiences, um, doing this this type of national security investigative work, um, you know, they don't pick up the phone and 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 call a journalist, even though I wish. And I actually really have to say, and you know, my partner, my producing partner, Ines Hofmann Kenna, and I, we discuss it over and over again. You know, these are government agencies. They have, you know, huge press departments, and I do strongly believe in a democracy that, you know, there should be government transparency, and these agencies and politicians as well, they have to respond to journalists' requests, because otherwise, you know, that's how you have, you know, information. People are filling in gaps. When they, you know, when when there's ambiguity, when they don't get access to to real information, I, you know, I honestly, I'm easy to find on the internet. I wish I could have a a conversation with someone um, from the FBI about this case. Sonny Kennebach, she is a documentary filmmaker. She's an investigative journalist. The documentary is called Enemies of the State. Sonia, congratulations on all the success with this film and all of your other films. Remarkable piece of work and we're so appreciative that you would come on and talk about it with us today. Thank you.